Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today. Literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. In this episode, we feature the novelist Britt Bennett. Bennett exploded onto the literary stage in 2016 with her novel, The Mothers. In her New York Times review, Mira Jacob praised the novel as a, quote, ferociously moving debut. Critics also noted Bennett's talent for creating both propulsive, page-turning plots and enduring, complex characters that stay with the reader long after the final page. So expectations were accordingly high for her second novel, and Bennett delivered in 2020 with The Vanishing Half, which was an immediate bestseller and earned Bennett comparisons to Toni Morrison, James Baldwin, and Elizabeth Strout. Both novels share a focus on the complicated dynamics of family and on the social and political influence of small-town communities. They also explicitly centered on secrets, on roads not taken, and on what-ifs. Bennett joined us for Portland Arts and Lectures on February 17th, 2022, to talk about The Vanishing Half and how and why she came to write it, and specifically, why she wanted to write a novel in which one of the primary characters passes for white. Bennett dives into the literary history of stories about passing from the beginning of the 20th century through the present, provides a fresh perspective on a theme central to American fiction, the creative and destructive power of personal transformation. Here's Bennett. Hi, thanks everybody for coming out. It's nice to not be uh, talking at my computer screen completely. So I'm going to talk a bit about The Vanishing Half and some of the thought that went into writing it, and then I'm really excited mostly to take your questions after. So if you ask anyone what they remember most from the 1959 melodrama Imitation of Life, most viewers will point to the climatic funeral scene where Sarah Jane Johnson, a light-skinned woman passing for white, flings herself onto the casket of the dark-skinned mother that she has disowned. In fact, I'm certain that this scene is the reason my own mother showed me the film when I was a girl. See, that's what happens when you treat your mother wrong, she said. (laughs) Those are always the ones crying and carrying on at the funeral. But the scene that really stuck with me happened a bit earlier in the movie when Sarah Jane is on a date with her white boyfriend who has just discovered that she is black. He beats her bloody in an alley and leaves her crumpled in a puddle. I was struck by the suddenness of this violence as well as its lack of consequence. The boyfriend is never seen in the film again and when Sarah Jane arrives home, her mother suggests that she's brought this violence on herself. I told you lies don't help none, she says. This is what happens when you lie. The film's moral lesson is crystal clear. Passing is wrong 
because passing is telling a lie. Years later, I would think about this film when in the middle of a conversation, my mother very offhandedly said, well, it's like that town where everyone intermarried so their children would get lighter and lighter. I remember that I was pacing in my apartment in Michigan at the time, and I stopped in my tracks. What town are you talking about, I said. And she told me again about a town that she remembered from her childhood in Louisiana, where black people obsessed over lightness. But when I tried to Google this place, I could not find the town that my mother remembered on any contemporary map. The place took on an almost mythic quality. What would it be like to live in a town like this? How would this community close themselves to outsiders? How would they uphold their own hierarchy within an already racially segregated South? But I knew that I was in the realm of the novel when characters appeared to me. Twin sisters who live diverging lives. Desiree decides to marry a dark man and returns to Mallard with her dark daughter, and Stella passes for white and disappears. The whole novel is suspended in the tension between Desiree and Stella, who spend the majority of their lives apart, yet remain consumed by each other. The twins excited me for a few reasons. Although I'm not a twin myself, I grew up with two older sisters. I've always been interested in writing about sisterhood, whether chosen or biological. My first novel, The Mothers, is about friends who become sisters. The Vanishing Half, on the other hand, is about sisters who become strangers. To me, sisterhood is a fascinating framework for stories about women trying to care for each other. At the same time, sisterhood is fraught. How would these twins growing up in this insular town get along? How might their personalities clash? How might they love each other, but at the same time want to desperately escape a claustrophobic bond? Additionally, sisterhood is a fun lens through which to explore identity. I've often thought about my own sisters and wondered how it might be possible that we share genetics and upbringing, yet turned out to be completely different women. Beyond that, this novel was also informed by the close relationship that I have with my sisters. Stella's decision to pass for white requires that she leave her entire past behind, including her twin sister. The thought of choosing to never speak again to my own sisters is so unthinkably devastating that it gave Stella's decision real emotional stakes for me. As I began to write, I later realized that I was also interested in the next generation of this family. Each twin has a daughter, and both girls go on to lead their own diverging lives. Desiree's daughter, Jude, endures the trauma of growing up in Mallard with dark skin. Even once she eventually escapes, she carries the pain of this place everywhere she goes. Jude is scrappy and hardworking, if a bit self-defeating, while Stella's daughter Kennedy 
is charismatic and confident, buoyed by privilege. Still, Kennedy struggles to be close to a mother who resists being known for reasons that she is incapable of understanding. When she begins to peel back her mother's complicated racial identity, she learns that her own is not as simple as she has always believed it to be. I'm often asked if Mallard is a real place, and as represented in the novel, it's imagined. But when I first started researching this book, I discovered that towns like this did in fact exist beyond my mother's memories. I dug into historical records about small insular towns occupied by light-skinned Creoles that existed between the black and white worlds. Louisiana has a fascinating racial history. On one hand, it resists the neat black-white binary because of its Creole population. During slavery, Louisiana also had a large population of free people of color who were able to enjoy some privilege and access. I imagined Mallard emerging from that population. At the same time, I also learned that until horrifyingly recently, Louisiana kept some of the most absurd laws about racial classification on its books. Famously, in 1982, a woman named Susie Guillory Phipps sued the state because she was listed as black on her birth certificate. She looked white and identified as white. She only discovered that she was listed as black in her 40s when she needed her birth certificate to apply for a new passport. Nothing is bad about being black if you're black, but I'm white, she told the Washington Post. Twice she'd married white, she said. My children are white. My grandchildren are white. Mother and daddy were buried white. My social security card says I'm white. My driver's license says I'm white. There are no blacks where I live except the hired hands. My birth certificate is the only thing that says I'm black. But Louisiana law allowed anyone with any traceable amount of black ancestry to be legally defined as black. And a birth certificate could not be altered unless evidence left no room for doubt about racial heritage. An attorney for the state noted that this legal standard is more strict than if Susie had been charged with murder. I've never forgotten this story because of its layers of absurdity. Susie saw her birth record for the first time because her husband wanted to take her on a trip to South America. And she was so horrified by her racial classification that she skipped the trip altogether, telling her husband that she felt sick. For five years, she kept her birth record a secret because she was afraid to tell her husband that he had accidentally married a legally black woman. But even more absurd is the actual conclusion. She spent over $20,000 in legal fees to get her birth certificate changed to white and the state of Louisiana fought her all the way. 
the state hired a genealogist to trace her ancestors back 223 years to discover that her great, 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 great grandmother was an enslaved woman. That was enough to make her black under Louisiana law. Beyond its absurdity, the other thing that struck me about this case is how recently it took place. As a 90s kid, it blew my mind to learn that the, that the state of Louisiana had racial classification laws on its books as recently as the early 80s. Not only this, but the fact that the state devoted time and resources fighting this woman's wish to reclassify her race. Although the law itself was repealed in 1983, Louisiana courts still refused to alter her designation. The court said that it could not alter state records and had no proof that her ancestors were white. After all, the state classified anyone with a traceable amount of black blood as black, but did not classify those with a traceable amount of white blood as white. Whiteness could only be proved by an absence of blackness. And of course, none of this takes into account the possibility that a person could identify as belonging to multiple races. Which is all to say that when I was researching this, I found it hard to imagine that these types of antiquated and nonsensical laws existed in the same time period as E.T., but somehow they did. <laughs> the Vanishing Half is centered on twin sisters, and similarly, the story is oriented around two major themes, colorism and passing. When my mother first sparked the idea for the town, I became immediately interested in the role of skin color and governing these characters' lives. I read a sociological report from the 1950s about a community called Freelo Cove. In clinical language, the baffled white researchers tried to understand this color-conscious, semi-isolated, rural black community and its residents that, to their eyes at least, appeared Nordic and Mediterranean. In this town, they wrote, no one married a dark person and remained, for the community would not allow it. A world like this felt compelling to me for a few different reasons. For one, I grew up in San Diego in the 90s, so the idea of a community like this even existing probably confused me as much as those mid-century researchers. Second, I knew that a town like this would be full of conflict, which is every novelist's dream. How would this community reinforce its own hierarchy? What are the implications on the people who live there? And what happens to those who violate the town's unspoken rules? If, in this real town, no one married dark and remained, then what would happen in my fictional town, if someone does. I knew then how the vanishing half would begin, with Desiree mysteriously returning to Mallard, holding the hand of her dark-skinned daughter. Through Mallard, I wanted to push the idea of colorism to its most extreme, 
most absurd end. After all, believing in the superiority of lightness does not materially help anyone in Mallard. This is not a wealthy black community of doctors and lawyers like the Chicago neighborhoods Margot Jefferson immortalizes in her memoir, Negroland. Mallard is a poor farm town. Light skin has not provided its residents with more wealth, status, or power. They have not even been spared racial violence. So what does lightness bring anyone in Mallard? Not land, not education, not even safety. Their lives, in other words, are no different than darker black people living in the rural South. And yet they still pursue lightness for its own sake. To write The Vanishing Half, I also had to research the complicated history of racial passing. In a sense, passing is a deeply American art. A college friend told me once that her family upon arriving at Ellis Island from Europe, changed their last name to hide their Jewish heritage. I've heard stories about family members who would claim to be white at work in order to earn higher pay. Most of our most famous novels about passing were published in the 1920s and 1930s. The Fanny Hearst novel, Imitation of Life, was published in 1933 before being adapted by Hollywood in 1934 and later 1959. Passing by Nella Larson, perhaps the most famous novel on the topic, was originally published in 1929. In fact, when I first started The Vanishing Half, I received some pushback on why I was writing a book about passing set so late in time. A story about passing that spanned from the 60s to the 90s seemed strange to some who associate the theme with a much earlier period in time. What was I doing then, starting my book in 1968? In college, a history professor once described the year 1968 as the last dying gasp of the idealistic 60s. It was such a tumultuous year in America, from the assassinations of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert Kennedy, to the protests at the Democratic National Convention and escalating violence in Vietnam. More personally to me, this was also the year when my mother left her small town in Louisiana to move to Washington, D.C. She arrived at the nation's capital the same week that Dr. King was assassinated and the streets lit up with riots. This small bit of family lore always struck me as oddly symbolic, a historical crisis serving as my mother's baptism into adulthood. When I started to think about when to open the novel, I kept returning to Dr. King's assassination as an inflection point for Desiree and Stella. Naturally, the violent murder of a nonviolent man reminds them of their own father's death. But beyond this shared recollection, both twins experience this historical moment differently. Amidst the chaos, Desiree finally seizes a chance to escape her abusive husband. 
Across the country, Stella is privately grieving. Still, days later, she finds herself defending segregation within her white neighborhood out of fear that new black neighbors might expose her secret. By opening the novel in the civil rights and post-civil rights eras, I wanted to examine what it meant to perform race at a time in which ideas about race were dramatically shifting, even if that meant setting a story about passing in a time period that readers might find strange. I wanted to write a different story about passing, one that also tracked alongside other monumental transformations in American culture throughout the latter half of the 20th century. Of course, I had no idea when I first started this book that passing would make a comeback in the news cycle. The most famous incident is perhaps Rachel Dolezal, the former NAACP chapter president who was exposed as a white woman on live television. A couple summers ago, a few stories emerged about white academics who had been passing as black scholars. I also came across a story about a writer passing as Afro-Cuban when he was, in fact, a black American from Detroit. No one in his life knew his secret. His husband only discovered the truth when the writer's parents corrected his obituary in the newspaper. On one hand, there's something deeply and traditionally American about all of these stories. If America is a country that worships individuality, then what could be more American than creating yourself? Think of how many of our cherished stories involve dramatic reinvention, or how many of our narrative heroes fashion themselves out of thin air. In the broadest sense of the term, you could say that Jay Gatsby is a man trying to pass, as well as his spiritual successor, Don Draper. Passing, then, feels deeply woven into our national fabric. On the other hand, these stories raise unsettling questions that speak to the contradictions inherent to passing stories. Traditionally, the passer is a transgressive figure. By crossing among social categories, she proves that the categories themselves are constructs. How real is race if it can be successfully performed? And what does it mean then to structure a society around a form of identity that is essentially performance? In The Vanishing Half, Stella becomes white when she goes in to interview for a job and the receptionist mistakens her for a white girl. So what is race really if she can enter an office building as a black woman and leave as a white one? Race is so unstable in part because its construction requires the participation of others. In fact, while researching this book, I stumbled upon a legal article from the 90s that argued that one of the problems with the state even designating one's race is that race is often identified by third parties whose only basis for racial assignment is the individual's outward appearance. Births are often categorized by the perceived race of the mother, deaths designated by a physician or funeral director, 
The article concluded that this has led to a peculiar situation where a person may be born one race and die another. In the novel, when Stella first begins to flirt with the idea of passing, she initially feels stupid for not trying to be white sooner. There was nothing to being white except boldness, she thinks. You could convince anyone you belonged somewhere if you acted like you did. At first, passing teaches Stella that the rules of race that have governed her life so far are nonsense. In one way, that idea is liberating, but it also frustrates her. Race itself may be false, but its consequences are felt from the cradle to the grave. Race has shaped her entire life, down to which side of a segregated cemetery she will be buried in. So what does it mean that race is so flimsy that it can be performed, but so rigid that it can dictate the material realities of your life? At the same time, Passers often end up reaffirming the hierarchies that they pose to topple. Later in the novel, Stella becomes the face of a neighborhood committee aiming to prevent a black family from moving in. Threatened by the possibility of the new neighbors uncovering her secret, Stella finds herself embracing the same white supremacist violence that she herself once faced in order to secure her position within her white community. So Stella becoming white does not actually threaten white supremacy. She just begins to benefit from it instead of suffering at its hand. In that way, she actually strengthens the same power structure that she threatens to dismantle. While writing The Vanishing Half, I also knew that I was writing into a centuries-old tradition that, frankly, many black readers felt tired of engaging with. So I wanted to write a contemporary take on this narrative that would feel relevant to a 21st century reader. For one, I didn't want to condemn Stella for her choices. Many passing stories are moralizing, often with the passer's life ending in death or misery. In Nella Larson's passing, Claire plummets to her death from an open window. In imitation of life, Sarah Jane does not die, but her dark-skinned mother dies of a broken heart before she gets to say goodbye. We're meant to view this death as a fitting punishment for Sarah Jane disavowing her mother and her own heritage. Beyond these unhappy endings, Many passing stories end with the passer being exposed or deciding to return to black life. Sarah Jane wailing mama at the funeral is not only a manifestation of her guilt and grief, but it's also a return to the racial status quo. By publicly claiming her dark mother at the funeral, Sarah Jane publicly reclaims her own blackness she is passing no longer. But I wasn't interested in exposing or punishing Stella for transgressing racial categories. I wasn't even interested in the question of whether Stella is right or wrong to pass, 
which seemed to me a simplistic and boring question to even ask. What I wanted to think about instead is how Stella's experience of passing changes her over time. How does she become a new person? How is this experience of transformation both liberating and also painful? Ultimately, I wanted to write toward a more contemporary idea of racial identity that acknowledges that race is both a social construct and a lived reality. I thought about what the historian Alison Hobbs wrote about Rachel Dolezal, that to lie about your race is to tell a lie about a fiction. What does passing even mean if we understand that categories like race are not stable, obvious, or even knowable? Take Kennedy, for example. When talking about this book, I've often struggled to even categorize her race. One author I talked to described her to me as, quote, functionally white with black heritage, um, which is inelegant, but perhaps the most accurate. The problem to me is that she has many racial identities. There's the way that her mother sees her, so white that it's alienating. Stella remembers holding her daughter for the first time. Sometimes, she thinks, Kennedy felt like a daughter who belonged to someone else, a child Stella was borrowing while she loaned a life that never should have been hers. Then there's the way that Kennedy thinks of herself. When she begins to discover Stella's past, she tries to search for evidence of blackness within herself. She believes that blackness is a feeling that she would recognize. She would see it in the faces of other blacks, some sort of connection, but she felt nothing. Her cousin Jude thinks of her as a mallard girl, pretentious but light-skinned, not white. But when Kennedy asks her black boyfriend if he would still love her if she wasn't white, he replies, no, because then you wouldn't be you. In his mind, at least, whiteness is stable and essential, her race impossible to separate from her personality or character. What I realized writing The Vanishing Half is that each of these characters fail to understand the inherent complexity of identity that often defies the simplicity of language. I realized that the discomfort I felt at defining Kennedy's race is the same discomfort that I should always feel about assigning any person to any category. After all, what makes up identity? Am I who I say I am? How my parents describe me? My friends? How a stranger might perceive me? None of the above? All of the above? Identity is always more complicated than language allows. And writing this book taught me that my job as a writer is not to flatten identity to fit language, but rather to find a way to make my language more expansive to encompass all the ways there are to be human. Ultimately, what drew me into this story was the inherent unknowability of passing. 
Historically speaking, we will never know the true number of people who have decided to pass. In a sense, passing is like faking your own death. There's no way of knowing if someone has done so successfully because the success of the act depends on it never being discovered. You can only recognize the people whose attempts have failed or who have decided to reveal themselves. As a child, when I saw a film like Imitation of Life, I always thought that passing was an act of self-hatred, or perhaps, even less interestingly, opportunism. I could understand intellectually why a black person would want to escape discrimination and violence by pretending to be white, but I also thought that it was cowardly and sort of weak. Writing this book made me realize that that was also a morally simplistic way of understanding passing. Stella's story became alive to me when I started to think of passing as an act of self-destruction as well as an act of self-creation. What do we gain and what do we lose when we decide to become someone else? When I started The Vanishing Half, I also worried that writing a book set in the past was an easy way to avert my gaze from the chaos of the contemporary moment. But later, I realized that even though this book is historical, I was still writing toward big questions consuming us in this present moment. Our cultural understanding of identity is becoming increasingly complex. What does it mean to perform race at a time when the scripts for race are constantly challenged and revised? An imitation of life, Sarah Jane dates a white man so racist, he assaults her when he discovers that her mother is black. In Nella Larson's passing, Claire also marries a loud and proud bigot. But in my book, Stella ends up marrying a white centrist who actually feels embarrassed by her aversion to black people. She grows up witnessing lynch mobs, but then lives as white in a place where open racism is considered tacky. She spends her life trying to hide that she's black from her daughter, who ends up rebelling by moving to a black neighborhood and dating a black man. In this world, as in ours, race is not stable nor so simple to perform. Even as she successfully passes, Stella always feels a step or two behind. Additionally, I also wanted to consider the beauty of transformation. The narrative counterpoint to Stella became Jude's boyfriend, Reese. Like Stella, Reese has also left his family behind in order to reinvent himself. But Reese escaped to save himself after facing transphobic violence, and reinvention is actually self-preservation. Reese undergoes physical changes that affirm who he is. At the end, he feels more like himself. Stella does not change at all physically. She doesn't even change her name. But by the novel's end, she has become a completely different woman emotionally and psychologically. By thinking about this novel as a story of transformation, I wanted to hold all these stories in tension with each other 
and discard the old trope that any character who moves among social categories should be punished as a result. What I would later learn while researching The Vanishing Half is that in the 1959 version of Imitation of Life, a white actress plays a black woman playing a white woman. But in the original 1934 version, the passing Piola is played by Freddie Washington, a light-skinned actress so convincing in her role that black audiences assumed that she similarly disavowed the black community in real life. But she was just playing a part. In real life, she was a civil rights activist who founded the Negro Actors Guild. Her own career later suffered because she refused to play white roles and directors considered her too fair to play black roles. When she appeared opposite Paul Robeson in The Emperor Jones, the Hollywood censoring board insisted that she wear dark makeup so that the audience would not mistake her for a white woman during the love scenes. How many people do you think there are in this country who do not have mixed blood? She told the Chicago Defender in a 1945 interview. There's very few, if any. Our culture and experiences, she said, is what makes us who we are. The truth of race in America has always been stranger than fiction, complicated, contradictory, and yes, absurd. But the question driving the vanishing half is a simple one alluded to in this Freddie Washington interview from over 70 years ago. What makes us who we are? Writing this novel forced me to sit in the uncertainty of that question. And I hope that reading it allowed you to spend some time there as well. Thank you. Thank you. That was really amazing and really powerful. The names in Vanishing Half, um, Stella, Desiree, Kennedy, Jude, um, so perfectly fit the characters. How do you uh, go about naming your characters? Is that something that comes early? Does it, does it go? Do you change them halfway through? I think it depends. Um, I mean, very, the boring like logistics of it is that I often will go to the like Social Security Administration website because... <laughs> You can you can sort name by year, so it makes it oh, yeah it makes it any any writers out here looking for some tips, um, it makes That's it very great. yeah it's it's not yeah, like, like a, these names belong together right it's right. not like a it's not like a sexy answer but it's just going through like like what was the most common name in 1932 or whatever yeah You're and then right. scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and finding something interesting so <laughs> I love that <laughs> yeah so that was some of um, some of those names how I encounter them because I usually don't want a name that's like the top 10 most popular. I want something kind of in the middle. Right. Um, so I, that's how I stumbled upon some of those names. But names like Desiree um, and Stella, I wanted names that would suggest their personalities, um, suggest that one is more willful and one is a little kind of dreamy and distant. Yeah. Um, and early, I think early was just a name that I'd stumbled upon. Like my mom does a lot of genealogy research, uh. so she's really obsessed with that. So that was like a name that had been in one of the genealogy things that she found, which I just thought was a cool name and a name that would make this character feel like he is 
kind of different than other people. Yeah. Like it's kind of, you know, it's sort of a name that's not a name, so it kind of positioned him outside of these other characters. Um, He's also like always late. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's true. Um, and some of, you know, Kennedy, it's like, yeah, I wanted this to be a privileged child, so of course I'm going to name her you know, this name that evokes a sense of American privilege. Yeah. Um, and Jude took a bunch of attempts. I couldn't really figure out what name she would have. But again, I wanted a name that would position her apart from people. So she has like a monosyllabic name where most of the characters have like multiple syllables. And so I, I wanted it to look different on the page. I wanted it, her to be positioned as different from people because she is a character who's spent so much of the book filling on the outskirts of everything. I mean, you just said something interesting that I mean, you said a lot of things that are interesting, but one of the things I noticed was you, you wanted to look different on the page. Yeah. That's just, can you say more about that? Like, when you talk about looking at the page, you're looking at words, you're looking at it. What, what, can you just dig into that a little bit? Because that's a really interesting way of thinking about language that yeah. don't, you don't hear very often. Yeah, I mean, I think about that with names in particular. Like, I try not to, you know, name characters with, you know, Jonathan and Jeremy and James and, you know, names that are going to, like, have similar letters or similar sounds. Because I think when you're reading, you're kind of, at a, at a point, you're sort of skimming past some of these things. So I want it to visually stand out in that way and also to sound differently when you're reading it, to have a different mm. kind of syllable, have a different, this name is short, this name is long, and not just the same, you know, all of the names have the same number of syllables. And so I, yeah. that's, that's a smaller concern. I'm not like necessarily sitting there counting syllables when I'm deciding a name, <laughs> but it is something that I think of I want, I want these names, like with Desiree and Stella, like my sister and I have alliterative names and uh -huh. it's terrible. Like my, my mom <laughs> What's always, her name? Brianna. I see. So my mom always confuses us, always calls us each other's names. Um, so I didn't want the twins to be like Tia and Tamara. I wanted them to have names that were going to be, <laughs> I wanted them to have names that would feel very different and feel like these are going to be two very different people because they are. Yeah. Well, and it's poetry. I mean, that just feels like poetry to me a little bit. That you're counting syllables and looking at these <laughs> a things. Is poetry bit. a part of your writing life at all? I mean, I read, like, I read, um, particularly my friends who are poets, who I love reading their work. Um, but I definitely am not a poet. Um, but I think, I think how it sounds, I mean, I think that's one of the things that poets really pay attention to is how something sounds. Um, so I will usually, like, this book I had to read out loud from start to finish at one point. Um, wow. because yeah, and it took forever and it was horrible, but <laughs> it's a great book. What do you mean um, it was horrible? <laughs> not when you have to read it out loud to yourself. It's horrible, but so you I, just sat in your study and just read the whole thing. Yeah. And what were you, what were you like, what was the work that you were doing there? Well, a lot of it is, I mean, how it sounds, am I repeating this word? Am I, does every sentence have the same rhythm? Does every sentence have the same, you know, it, it's so different when you read it out loud and you realize, why do I always say, you know, whatever kind whatever of... Whatever verbal tick you've got. Right, whatever right. crutch word that you use. Yeah, why do I keep saying that? Um, yeah, it's different when you hear it out loud and, and versus when you see it on the page. So that is something I eventually do when I'm revising, but that, that usually comes later. Wow. Do you have a specific verbal tick that you got, or writing tick <laughs> that you got rid of? I know there probably were plenty. I can't think of any off the top of my head, yeah. but... It was a long time ago, I Yeah, it's been a while. How long, this person wants to know, how long do you linger in the world and lives of your characters after you finish a project? That's a good question. Um, well, I think for one, I've been lucky, I would say, that with each project I've done, I've, I've usually started on the next thing before that book comes out. So 
the Vanishing Half I was kind of dabbling with when The Mothers was being published. So I've always had a sense of where I wanted to go next. Um, and I think that helps kind of pull you out of that past book when you yeah. have a new thing that you want to work on. Um, but I also think, you know, with The Vanishing Half, The Mothers, that feels really far from me. Hmm. Um, like I was getting some questions about The Mothers this morning and I had to kind of take a step back because I hadn't read that book or thought about that book really deeply in a while. Um, and The Vanishing Half, I'm still, I think, pretty much in the world because I've been talking about this book on Zoom for two years. So I've, I've had to think about these oh people. <laughs> Zoom. I know. So I've been thinking about these people like, every day. But, you know, I assume as, as time goes by, they're going to become more distant to me. And soon it kind of feels like, like the mother's almost feels like a book that somebody else wrote because that was a book that somebody else did kind of write. It was 24-year-old me, you know. So yeah. Well, you I were think, 17 when you started it, though, Yeah, too, right? so, like, like vestiges of 17-year-old me all the way up to 24-year-old me. And, yeah, those are completely different people than where I am now. Yeah, wow. Um, can you talk about the title? Is the half uh, one twin disappearing or a black identity lost or all of the above or question mark? <laughs> dot, dot, um, dot. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, well, first I'll say my agent came up with the title. I did not come up with this title. Um, huh. And I am really bad at coming up with titles. So um, I was very glad that she suggested this. Um, and I think one of the reasons why I really love the title is, as this question alludes to, there are so many different interpretations of it. I think like the cover of the book evokes the sisters, one of them kind of blending into the other, kind of subsuming yeah. the other maybe. It's, it's kind of a disturbing image in a way, even though the cover is very beautiful. Um, but I think also these other meanings that uh, this person pointed out, uh, you know, the, the sort of black side of the family disappearing, you know, Stella's uh, half of herself disappearing, um, and other characters in the book who are experiencing these moments of transformation um, from one life to another, what, what people are sort of losing as they're becoming the new person that they want to be. So right. I think it, it, it has all those different meanings. Right. This person says, you write about your characters with so much love, and love is underlined. Um, they are complex and nuanced and unforgettable. Can you talk about how you cultivate this? Thank you. That's really kind. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I always, I, I want to write from a place of love, and not, and not to the extent of, being too protective of your characters, which I think it's very easy to do, of trying to spare them from anything that's going to be uncomfortable. Um, there were certainly moments in The Vanishing Half where I caught myself doing that and had to sort of rein it in. Mm. <laughs> um, and But at the same time, I think, I, I love writers who do that. I think, like, Jasmine Ward is one of my favorite writers, and somebody was saying this to me the other day, that she, you could tell she loves her characters. And I'm like, yes, you can tell that when, when you read her work. Um, so I think, I, you know, I think when you write from that place of love, um, you, you see people in their best light, you see them in their most complex light, in their most interesting light. I think that's part of what it means to love somebody is seeing them in the most interesting way that they could be. Um, so I think that that's something that I do try to, to bring into the work is just thinking about what are all of the different sides of this person? How can this person be more and more complex um, if I feel like something about them comes off as flat or too simple, how can I be more and more specific in making them feel like a realized person? Yeah. That's just so beautiful, the way what you just said about seeing somebody, you know, what love is, is seeing somebody in their most complicated, most, most powerful, but it's really amazing. Um, what are the sort of like canonical books for you yeah. in your life? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, what are the books that you go back to 
what are the books that really are important to you? Yeah. Whether or not they're influential. I mean, they might be, but on you. Yeah. But, but. Well, I think for sure, Go Tell It on the Mountain, that was very influential on the mothers, but also a book that's really, um, that was really important to me. It was, I remember stealing it from my parents' bookshelf when I was growing up, and that being, I think, the first Baldwin thing I ever read. Mm. Um, so that was a book I love. I mean, I think often about Song of Solomon, which is... Um, such an like incredible epic like it's it has such a large scale but also it is so intimate <laughs> and I think that that's something I thought about for you know the vanishing half of how do you tell a story that feels like it's mythic and it feels like you know Song of Solomon you're like I'm reading the Odyssey like you're yeah. reading this big epic book but at the same time you're reading a story about a family and about a guy and a guy who's looking for gold um so I think that's that's um and that's the Odyssey's a family story in that's the end, true that's right? true <laughs> I mean, it's not given to us that way, right. but if you were to, like, strip it if down again. If you strip again, it down, yes, yeah. yes. Um, so that's a book I go back to a lot. I said Their Eyes Were Watching God. Yeah. Um, I mean, those are, those are three that just came to the top of my head. Right. Well, and that, that sense of epic, is that why the novel, The Vanishing Half, I mean, is, is broken up into these sort of chunks of time and then moves forward through generations? That, that's got to be a part of your thinking. I think that was part of it. Uh, I mean, I originally thought it would just be a very linear story, and I didn't think it was going to take so much time. Um, but it then became nonlinear and took 30, 40 years. Right. So I think that that was part of why I wanted to sort of, I don't even want to say like cut away, but I had moments where you meet the characters, you leave them, you go with somebody else, and then you return back to those people. It felt like an economical way to move through time, but also felt like a way to uh, portray the kind of brokenness of that family and the brokenness of time. Mm. Because it felt when I was writing it that Stella existed in a very different timeline than Desiree, as if they were almost like in different like, universes. Yeah. So breaking up the story in those ways felt to me more a more real way of, of, of portraying that than if I had just told all of it very interwoven um, in the way that I originally thought I would. And did you, so you, you just, it sounds like to me, what I heard was you discovered that structure in the making of the book. Is yes. that true? Yes. So you thought you were going to write something from start to finish when you, when you started out? Yeah, I mean, I thought, I don't know if anyone's read Silver Sparrow by T.R.E. Jones, um, which is another book that I love. Um, and I love her. She's great. Um, but I thought it would be a structure like that book, which is, it's a story about sisters, and first part of the book is one sister, second part of the book is another sister. So I thought, okay, I'll write the book in half. The first half is mostly Desiree, the second half is mostly Stella. Um, but it became, you know, something much messier than that. <laughs> it doesn't feel messy now. I'm Thank sure you. that the process was probably maybe messy, but when you, yeah. it felt very... Um, I mean, it was really, actually really satisfying to move through time and to understand the fates of different, you know, Jude. When, you know, that, and that, that part of it felt really satisfying. Thank you. And really, really uh, powerful. Well, I could sit here all night and talk to you. This is amazing. But we actually have to go. Um, so thank you very much. Our last question, this is also kind of a thing we like to land on a little bit. Um, we just love to hear, like, advice for the young writers. Are they not young writers mm -hmm. in the room? What, what advice would you give specifically to young writers or to writers in general? As yeah. Someone who's so accomplished. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think my my advice. I mean, the first one is basic, but it's just, just read widely. Um, I I've, I think you learn from everything you read, even if you hate the book. Um, which is not to say read books that you hate, but 
Um, you know, I think particularly when you're in school, you're not choosing the books you're reading, you're being assigned things, and I, sometimes I would feel the urge to just be like, oh, I'm not gonna like this book, I don't care about what this book's about. But you never know things that, that will inspire you, things that will challenge you. Sometimes reading something that you hate can motivate you to writing something that you want to write. So I would say one is just viewing that as an opportunity when you're reading, um, wanting to you know, challenge yourself to read things that are outside of your comfort zone or outside of your perceived interests, because you never know things that you can sort of just back into that suddenly um, you develop an interest or develop something that you wanna write about. So I think that's the first thing. And the second thing that I tell people all the time is learning how to be patient with yourself. Um, and I think that this is true for anything, but I think especially for writing, because the writing will be bad for way longer than it will ever be good. Um, I'm really sorry to tell you, but that's true. Um, and that's assuming like you ever feel like it's good, and there are many writers who would never feel that way. Like They could be the most accomplished person and still feel like their work is not good. How do you feel about it? Um, it depends. On which day is it? <laughs> depends on the day. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, and, and I think part of my journey, I think, has been to recognize that all of those are feelings that pass. Like feeling like your work is bad doesn't mean your work is bad, doesn't mean you should throw it away. Um, you know, feeling like your work is good, good doesn't mean that there's no way you can improve. Um, I try to understand those feelings come and go, uh, but I have to learn how to be patient with myself because I think the difference between people who finish books and people who come up to you at a party and say, oh, I've got a novel that I'm gonna write someday that they never get to, I think often the difference is people who will finish it are willing to like sit through it and struggle through it when it's bad and, and not quitting because they think, oh, I'm not good. Yeah. Um, having, being able to have that patience and being able to forgive yourself, I think, when you disappoint yourself, which, like I said, is true of all life. But again, when you sit down to write, most, most days you will disappoint yourself. I'm sorry to say, most days you'll sit there and look at it and be like, this is awful, what am I doing? I wanna delete it. That's like my normal feeling. <laughs> so, uh, it's, tough. <laughs> it's tough, it's not great. Um, but that's like my normal feeling when I write, you know? So if I let that completely guide me, I wouldn't have finished this book. I would have like been stuck in 2018 because I was so, um, so trapped and I didn't know how to move forward in the book. Yeah. Um, but I think learning how to under accept that as part of the process, accept that feeling bad is often part of the process or sometimes part of the process and trusting that if you work at it, you will get it better, you will make it better. Um, I think that's the biggest thing is just learning how to be patient mm. when, when things are not, do not feel like they're going right, which like I said, I think applies to everything in life. Words to live by. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, thanks for having me. Thanks everybody, Thank you. That's Britt Bennett from a Portland Arts and Lectures event in February, 2022. This has been Literary Arts. The Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is produced by Crystal Liguori and Donald Orr for radio and podcast, with production oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson. And I'm the executive producer. Special thanks to Literary Arts marketing staff, Joti Roy and Hope Levy, and the entire Literary Arts staff, board, and community. The show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Andrew Proctor, 
And this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.